is this tomorrow at is this tomorrow.com is a comic produced by Woody Compton and Kelly Shane. Woody and Kelly met while driving school buses in Antarctica, after being kidnapped by mercenary beaver trappers who still thought it was the 19th century. As public transportation employees, they discovered that they shared a quixotic, cockeyed vision of the world, incorporating elements of competitive square dancing, Christian puppet theater, budget hairpieces, and all sort of other, deeply patriotic American pastimes. Upon their escape they jet skied to Tallahassee, Florida, with a smile in their hearts and leather chaps on their hindquarters. They began producing, is, this, tomorrow, for a local newspaper, the North Florida Water Management District Gazette. Their creative vision blossomed, and now today they have hundreds, if not thousands, millions, an astronomical number, of strips available, with a new one coming every week. Explore Woody and Kelly's visions at, is, this, tomorrow.com. They pay us to say this. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of That Record Got Me High. That is Barry Stock. And that is Rob Elba. And we are very excited for this show. This is a show over two years in the making. Uh, we are very excited. This is a special episode. Uh, sometimes we do episodes where we'll do a record and we'll actually have someone that was involved with the record to speak on it. And that's what we're doing tonight. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome... Associate, I, I believe you're still associate professor at Endicott College in uh, Beverly, Massachusetts. He's the uh, dad of the very talented Tess Burnham, and uh, many of you may know him as the drummer for the legendary Gang of Four. Uh, welcome to the show, Mr. Hugo Burnham. Welcome to the show, Hugo. Thank you very much, but if you call me Hugo again, I will kick you in the balls because I'm uh -huh. not an East in car there's a hard h at the beginning of my name hugo hugo okay i knew i would i usually mess people's names up uh, right at yeah. the beginning so that's good that we got that well, out of the way hugo <laughs> yeah that's the right place to do it then you can be properly corrected yeah exactly i appreciate that you you just go on you just go on correcting me the proper english yeah, no hugo problem. through the show yeah that, that know, won't be the that I won't be the only word that rob probably has an alternative <laughs> yeah. pronunciation for spoiler alert but, Hey, I, I am a college professor. I get paid for correcting people and being pedantic. So That's fine. We're, we're, yes, you, know, you we're, do. We're already <laughs> a good shuffle here. <laughs> and uh, I also mentioned another hobby of yours is getting banned on Facebook uh, and then getting put in Facebook jail. Uh, <laughs> getting an right, argument. Yeah, um, yes, I have done, uh, I think, four 30-day bans. <laughs> 
but it's great because every time I come back, it gives me an opportunity to post 30 Days in the Hole by Humble Pie. Yeah, of course. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You do do that. I actually, when I when I was teaching at um, a college before Endicott in Boston, um, I did a radio show there as well, and I called it 30 Days in the Hole. Hmm. Um, and that was, so, yeah, I mean, you know, Humble Pie, Fabulous. Yeah. Can I ask you? Did you? Yes. Ever, did you ever live in Tallahassee, Florida? Are you insane? <laughs> because there was some. What would I, I, ever, what would I ever do living I, in? That's what I thought. Because nothing. Someone, you go. The answer is nothing. So. I agree. Well, there's a college there. There's a universe. There is a university there. But someone yeah. chimed into a I, Tallahassee I, group. I, I traveled through. I probably uh, had a cocktail or two there, um, but. Never lived there. So very briefly, for the, my, my, my life in the United States, we first came to the States when we were touring um, in, 19, in the summer of 1979, literally right after we finished recording entertainment. And we had a tour that was booked by the lovely and fabulous, deadly departed Ian Copeland. Mm. Um, oh, wow. With, mm. with FBI, Frontier Booking International. And it was right. a tour that we did self-financed um with no record deal here we just we just done our deal with emi for the rest of the world but nothing in america um and we came on the back of some good reviews by a few odd strange people and the um damaged goods ep and uh, we came over with the buzzcocks we did six shows with the buzzcocks and uh, I, I could go on and on about how wonderful the Buzzcocks were to us and how helpful oh, they were. Oh, nice, nice. Picking us up in the world. Um, and we did a bunch of shows on our own. I think we were here for about six or seven weeks, and it was extraordinary. And uh, it really changed our whole thing. Um, so I, I don't even know how I got onto that. But yeah. Um, I asked you about, <laughs> well, ask you about Barry Tower. <laughs> okay, so that was, I was 79, and obviously over the years we toured, and then when I'd left Gang of Four, and I, um, I then was, uh, I was a musician for another year or two, and I did one tour with another band there called Illustrated Man, um, mm -hmm. where the best of that band was I got to play and make friends and remain friends to this day with the wonderful Rob D from the guitar player from Japan, oh, who yeah. um, is greatest human beings i love him dearly um and uh, then i moved to new york in 1988 when i was managing shriekback because i was coming back and forward between london and new york as often as i could afford to do so because i love new york and shriekback was signed to island records in new york rather than london so i was here a lot and then in 1988 i just i had it with london and i wanted to move here so i did sold my flat in South London, on the old Kent Road, just a stone's throw from the workhouse studio where we recorded entertainment. Mm. Oh, um, wow. And moved, uh, I moved to Brooklyn uh, in the days before it was hip. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, and I lived uh, near the Brooklyn Museum, sort of halfway between what was beginning to be Yuppieville. And on the other side of me, it was more like Beirut. So, um, yeah. <laughs> It, it was great. And then I moved to Los Angeles in 91 when I was doing A&R for various labels um, and came back east to Massachusetts at the end of 98 after I'd sort of done my time with record labels and uh, fell into teaching eventually. So anyway, th th there you have in a nutshell my... Yeah, it, well, yeah. I, I know. <laughs> 
Well, everyone, people end up, you know, everywhere. But um, yeah, that's. I, I was wondering how you ended up in, in the states, and you ended up staying here. Um, I'm going to chime in that I it, this is great because it gives me an opportunity to legitimately play some Shriekback in the bed of the show because I, oh, I, I, lo- I love Shriekback yeah. and uh, they oh, are me too. they tend to be a little forgotten um, these days but you know um, they were an extraordinary band I mean obviously as many people know they were formed by Barry Andrews from XDC with Carl Marsh from Out on Blue Six and Dave Allen Dave Allen right um, my, my lovely and dear um, rhythm section partner. Yeah. Um, so, and then when I left Gang of Four, after I was doing some music, I, my brother, Jolyon, who used to work the ga- with Gang of Four, was working with the manager of Shriekback at the time and uh, also working with Blanche. Shriekback had a, like a week-long tour in Europe and Jolyon couldn't do it. So he said, would you take them? So as tour manager, so I said, yeah, sure, I'll go. And uh, a week in Europe, uh, four of those days in Amsterdam, uh, <laughs> with me and Shriekback, it's like, <laughs> we have no we need our manager because uh, we, it's not working. We want you to manage us. And I thought, okay, yeah, this is cool. So sure. I, I pivoted to artist management and tour management and had a great time for probably three years with Shriekback. Yeah. It was wonderful. Yeah. I, I honestly, they were one of the greatest, strongest live acts during that mid to yeah. late 80s. Uh, you can put on, you can still put, uh, if you can put ne- get Nemesis on the PA at a club, it's still, you know, the the dance floor yeah. just gets packed because that stuff it is kills. just remarkable. Yeah, it's great stuff. But, but we're not here to talk about uh, streak back. No, no we're as not. people, <laughs> as you, as you, as people have probably guessed by now, we are going to talk about the debut, mostly debut, uh, Jangle Four Record Entertainment. Because the reason we waited this long to get Hugo on, Hugo was going to come out a while ago, but this is the fortieth. Well, the fortieth anniversary actually passed at this point, but um, Matador Records is putting out this awesome uh, box set. Uh, that's got um, the, the first two records, Entertainment Solid Gold. It's got a, a, a singles LP and it's got a, a, a double LP of a never uh, of a um, never officially released uh, live show. from the Amer- North American Indian Center in San Francisco in 1980. Uh, yeah, put out live on the radio and it's been floating around for years and uh, it just seemed like. When we, and I say we collectively, but honestly, mostly John, with me as his first lieutenant, putting this whole project together, which we talked about for quite a long time, but really started to get serious with in uh, August of 2019. Um, We just, with the help of a very wonderful um, music business attorney in Los Angeles, who was a fan, got our copyrights back mm. from Warner Brothers, mm. the five-year rule, which we, we, you know, we quote and talk about in the box set. Um, and Warner Brothers today is not the Warner Brothers or Warmer Brothers. When we were signed to Warner Brothers, it was in the absolute thick of their greatest years. I mean, they were the label. I mean, Electra, you know, the, but Warner Brothers under Mo Austin and Lenny Wanaka were the, just the the place to be and they were wonderful people we were so honored to be signed there and uh 
we were actually signed by Jerry Wexler, um, mm. which I'll I'll continue to repeat to anyone who listens because that in itself. <laughs> yeah, that's remarkable. Um, it was. I mean, his son Paul Wexler brought him to our te- or brought us to his attention, and Jerry, who just signed B52s, was like really into it, and he was engaged and involved, and uh, it was. I mean, yeah, we were amongst gods uh, of labels and label people who really valued their artists. Yeah. So it was wonderful. Right. By the time, by the time it had you know got sold off and all that crap with um, um, Time Warner and everyone else who bought the mouse and them, you know, by the time it was all over, we were sort of with um, Rhino Records who. Well, again, earlier in early days, were a fantastic label. Yeah, wonderful right. work. But by the end of it all, it was just—it was horrendous. There was one person <laughs> left in the Warner's family who we, I personally, loved and adored, who I'd known for years, who really tried to help and make it work for us. But in the end, uh, when we said, "Well, no, we we can leave now legally," um, but. You know, we have great history. Make us an offer. And it was insulting. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, so, and we were quite lucky. We had three or four other labels who said, my goodness, we'd love to get involved with you and work your catalog. Um, and Matador. Yeah. Um, and again, it, it, just like when we originally signed with Warner's and EMI originally, it wasn't just about the money. It right. was about the people. Yeah. Um, yeah, Matador oh, yeah, yeah. is fantastic. Yeah, fantastic label. They are. They're they're one of the they're the one label that seems to still be like holding on, putting out really cool stuff, and still you know, and, and still finding new artists and and still being about the music. And it's really harder and harder to find labels that are still like that. Yeah. Um, so it was it, it was a no brainer eventually when once we talked to them and met with them and they made us a very generous offer to take over our catalog. Fantastic. By that John and I had started and Dave working on this box set and it's an incredible piece of work I mean it's John's masterpiece to be honest he is such a great visual artist um, and uh, he led this and um, worked with some terrific people um, Dan Gallo at Master and Bjarke Vinder who um, who was the uh, you know, sort of actual designer designer working with John it's fantastic so yeah four pieces of five pieces of vinyl four um, one of all the singles the first two albums and there's also a cassette in there <laughs> yeah I, a, a, a C90 cassette <laughs> and it's basically a cassette of all the old demos from the first yes. two albums that have been floating around and I mean, I tell you, putting this whole thing together, and there's a hundred-page booklet as well. Um, booklet, hell, it's a book. Yeah. Um, I, I've been carrying around boxes and files of Gang of Four stuff for forty odd years. You know? <laughs> um, right. It's like, you know, I thought, what? Well, you know, Richard, oh, maybe my kids will enjoy this, and it's like. Not really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. She doesn't care. <laughs> and, and we have we have lovely good friends who all said, "Oh, I've got some pictures I should share with you." So it's a really good collection of stuff. That uh, it's not just sort of silly pictures. I mean, there are a few silly pictures. Of but, course. 
it gave us an opportunity to share not just what we were doing musically and as four great friends, but what was going on politically at the time as well. Um, you know, making good reference to other acts like, uh, you know, the Mekons, obviously, who we were very close with, mm-hmm. and the yes. like Rock Against Atheism that we were so involved with back in those days. So it, it's a capsule, if you like, of that time, 77 to 81. The original right. lineup of the what we were doing what we were thinking, what we were playing, and how. Yeah, it, it looks awesome, and it's going to be, when this show comes out, it'll be right around, the actual release date is March 12th. You can go uh, to, uh, um, actually, you can go right to gangofor.ffm.to forward slash box set uh, to order it, uh, to pre-order it, or and you can do it through Matador as well. Uh, you know, you go, uh, uh, before anything else, I just wanted to say, uh, condolences. Obviously, we never. Do- I sent you condolences when Andy Gill passed away. Uh, just condolences on that. I mean, it must be a bittersweet in a way. I-, I understand things didn't, you know, weren't great with you guys, but I-, I know how it is with bands. I mean, bands are like family. So even when you have a falling out with a family, they're they're still part of your family. So, uh. so the movie Band of Brothers probably says it better than anything. Um, one fall, one can fall out with and move apart from and come back with and move apart from over the years with people that matter to you. But honestly, the four of us had and did something that was really, really special. We were very lucky to do it, but we did it. And it's funny because I was, I just, I don't know, somebody said something on Facebook and I managed to find um, on YouTube um, uh, a, a clip from when we did um, the old Grey Whistle test. In- oh, yeah, yeah. I, I just I, I just watched that. It was, um, he'd send in the army, right? Absolutely. And I, I, I haven't been able to find that clip for years because the original clip well, it was a little bit longer, and at the beginning, Annie Nightingale, who was the sort of uh, presenter and famous long-term lovely DJ, BBC DJ, um, when she was introducing us in the show, and it's cut off from this clip. My dad is sitting right behind her, because he was there. But it really is. I, I, I was sharing it with somebody um, just today. I said, well, if you really want to know what it was like, this is it. Because Andrew is extraordinary in terms of his visual and oral performance, as were we all. But there was something really visceral and special about Andrew in this particular clip, because it is so much about tension and release. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. That dynamic mattered to us and something we really worked hard, you know, which was something uh, that sort of music really appealed to us. The things that brought us together that we found in common when we were first starting, it was dub reggae. It was Dr. Field. Yeah. It yes. was free, the band free. Yeah. I mean, most Americans have free beyond all right now, but there is so much more depth to it. And um, it was that sort of, it's it's what you don't play in the silences that matter. And it is, he sent in the army, live at the Old Grey Whistle Test, from 11th of April, 1981. And anyone can go and find that on YouTube. And that 
It's probably one of the best pieces of film we ever put together because we never did any videos back in the day, right. sadly. Right, uh, right. But it, um, it, yeah, there's a good, there's a good set of you guys at the, at the Rock Palace, but that's pretty fierce too. Of well, you guys playing uh, okay. that's out there. Uh, yeah, the Rock Palace show was great. That was the last show I ever did with Gang of Four before the reunion. You know. Oh wow. Um, and that was with Sarah Lee when she was with the band. Right. And yes. we had two fabulous backing singers, Michelle Cobb, who played, who sung with Chic, and uh, the utterly fantastic Dolette McDonald, who was with Talking Heads and Police and Don Henley. And, you know, she sang with everybody. Wow. But she sang with us, and she's still my dear friend to this day. And, yeah, that was a fierce tour. But it was my last tour. I got fired three weeks after that yeah. show. I don't, I don't, can't even comprehend that. I don't understand that because, well, we'll get, I mean, just the, the playing, the, the thing is about this record, and I know, obviously, this is a record me and Barry have listened to hundreds of times. And right. we, uh, you know, and, and doing this show over the years, it gets referenced so much because uh, it's just, you know, it's documented. You guys, it, it, Gang of Four influenced uh, everyone from R.E.M. to the Red Hot Chili Peppers to Nirvana, Kurt Co Cobain. Yeah, and, I mean, just so, I mean, you know, and, uh, and it's yeah, yeah right, obviously. I, and and there's, it is so um, lovely and flattering that so many fantastic people have said very kindly over the years. Oh yeah, I love Gang of Four, or you know, we we wanted to sound like Gang of Four. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, right. Thank you. Now, yeah. if all of you would just. One penny for every yeah. damn record. Yeah. <laughs> You're loving. I know yeah. it's the it's the great it's oh, the yes. money lyrics to money. Your just, loving gives me thrills, but your you, your loving don't pay my bills. Just wait. <laughs> with, Rob and I will do our own our own uh, uh, pat hat in hand speech at the end of the show. Yeah, of course. You know, hey, you know, at the end of the day, uh, uh, to compare ourselves to uh, another great influence on us, Velvet Underground, um, the band that never yes. really sold it at the time, but that influenced everyone to go and start their own band and make a fortune. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. But it's so funny. Still, when you listen to this, and Barry, I know, like, obviously, we listened to it closely this past week, you know, as we do when we listen to it. And it's still, it's astonishing to me how, like you said, how it's the things you leave out, too, and how economical it, it, it is. I mean, it's not overplayed. I was listening, Hugo, there's songs I don't hear you, like, hitting the cymbals hardly at all. Some songs you're, like, not all over with the crash and right. It's just so, it's like, you know, you're playing exactly what needs to be played and with so much um, conviction and power. All right, you talk about symbols. Um, I always felt that symbols should never be this wash to um, go over the top or make, you know, to cover mistakes or because you can't think of what else to do. Right. Symbols uh, were as much a drum as anything else. And the, the style of drumming that I developed, it was very, um, how do I put it? mathematical mm. in that i knew every beat that i was doing i would count them off i knew how many times i'd hit the symbol in the first round of eight and then which symbols i'd hit in the second round of eight as we built during songs i mean <laughs> you know it, it, that's how i played um I, it was right. not about uh, you know fills lots of fills were not my style 
Um, no, no. <laughs> but it makes everything, it, it adds so much attention to the attention, music right. and it just exactly. makes it so much more powerful. Exactly. Tension and relief. Everything in the game, yeah, everything in this record is, it does, it does have a particular kind of relentless um, tension that is unlike um, it, it, its imitators. It, it has a, a distinct sound and a, the distinct the way it's recorded with very little reverb. And so it's very much in your right in your face. And so you don't yeah. get the kind of sonic um, release that Wash. you exactly that you would. So it does not. It's uh, people. My wife and I have had a discussion about the difference between between Fela Kuti and his son Femi, and the Femi and we would listen to Femi and we would like it. And she said, "You know what I like about Femi is that with Fela, it's just relentless. It's like he's poking you. He's standing in front of you and he's poking you in the chest." And that's the feeling yep. you get from entertainment is that you guys are staring the people, the listener down and, and poking them in the chest. And it's well, a very unique okay. experience. I understand that dynamic. And I can only say that that's akin to what we did to each other making. <laughs> <increase>. Yeah, I'm <laughs> sure. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, before, all right, all right, so before we actually uh, jump into the songs, I guess uh, one other thing I, I wanted to point out as we're going to go through some of the lyrics and stuff too, but uh, something that always uh, I've noticed is that it, as, as political as you guys were, a band so uh, a political could come off as insufferable, uh, pedantic. But the thing that some people I feel like miss is that you guys, you had this drive, there was this wit and this sense of humor underlying there yeah. that, uh, and this cleverness that uh, juxtaposed that. So it wasn't just these people pre preaching, you know, politics to you. Right. I, you, you, absolutely. It was, um, I wouldn't say clever. I don't like that word. <laughs> we were smart. We were, um, well-read, we were interesting, and yes, humor. I mean, Jesus Christ, we used to laugh so much. I don't just mean yuck, yuck laugh, but we were witty. We had humor, um, and we were not dour. And that was, I think that's what really kicked off for us, particularly in the United States when we first came over to it, because people, oh, you know, it's that sort of, it wasn't called post-punk at the time, but, you know, the yeah. slightly more serious yeah. rock. Um, what later became known as shoegazing, and we were the antithesis of shoegazing. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, as performers, we kicked. I mean, we destroyed people. Um, and, and that mattered to us, you know. We are entertainers. Um, we are on stage and we have um, a responsibility to, and it doesn't diminish the importance of what we were saying and doing, but to entertain. Yeah. I mean, when I want to go to it, when I, it's why I used to hate going to shows where it was so fucking moody <laughs> that the lights were bad. It's like, turn the lights on. I want to see his face while he's singing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's had. He had some moody lights, but they were very extreme and sharp and fierce. There was, you know, uh, yeah, we were worth seeing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. being fabulous 
to look at and very thin back then. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, you know. <laughs> um, we were we were hot. <laughs> yes. Um, all right. So let's get in, let's get into this already. Let's uh, let's start side one. Let's listen to the first song that starts the record out. It is called Ether. mention one thing and that's that um i never in the states the band dr feelgood means nothing um they never had a hit here they never had any success here they never had any no one knows about them and they just you know basically did not exist and then a few years ago someone shared a clip of them performing um she'd do it right on a, some British show from about 1975, a live performance on a British, you know, television show, audience full of teenagers, and it was astonishing. It was like people, they were, it was like they were literally on fire, and I'd never seen anything like it, and then I got a hold of the documentary about uh, Dr. Feelgood, um, I do. There was a segment where they were talking to Andy about Wilco Johnson, and yeah. it, there is a there is a direct line there with, and not only in the in the in the economy of the way they played, and it just uh, it was something I had no one would have ever over here would ever have known that were it not for this someone sharing this clip of Doctor Feelgood and him going, oh my god. Well, yeah, I mean, it was more than a line between Andy and um, Wilco. I mean, it was, it was a really broad sort of <laughs> ribbon, a mm-hmm. thick, broad red ribbon. Um, Dr. Feelgood were immensely influential to us. I mean, and one of the greatest live acts. And I mean, we learned from them stagecraft as much as uh, sound. Yeah. And... Um, uh, focus. I mean, good God. Yeah. yeah. America, America disappoints me frequently. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that. <laughs> great, um, well, it, these days it, it disappoints all of us, you go. Mm. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay. You ignored Slade. You ignored yeah. Dr. Field. Yeah. You ignored the sensible Alex Harvey band. I mean, yes. right there. The, 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 I am. 
that we enjoyed that you were just too dumb to get. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's true. It's true. So, yeah, Dr. Feelgood were immensely brilliant. Um, and I think, I mean, there are other songs that perhaps um, people can listen or see or hear the, the link better um, than Ether. But, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's funny, we, we opened with Ether almost deliberately against what the record company was saying. Because I was going to ask you that. I was going to ask you that. Because it seems kind of a strange opening track. But how, did, who, how did you decide how you were going to sequence the record? Um, whatever anyone else suggested, we went in the other direction. <laughs> right. Ah, okay. Contrarian. <laughs> okay, so it, partly it was about, this is our record, and it's, it's you know, we, we want to do things right. And there was a small degree of bloody-mindedness. Mm, um, yeah. But natural's not in it, or even, well, we'll get there, but... But it, but it's a it's a real statement song. It's like yeah. we are not doing what other people do, and this is not perhaps the obvious easy way to grab your attention with a record. But yet it worked because of what that song was. I mean, yeah. it was very uh, the dynamic that we use quite often of it's almost like two songs going side by side. That sort of troupeau's, yes. you know, numero dos. You know, other filmmakers, or even um, um, Velvet Underground. You know, you have two things going on uh, alongside each other. Yeah, uh, that were just interesting. You know, I mean, John singing his thing, and then you've got the whole Irish um, IRA prison thing that Andrew was doing. Um, yeah. Call and response is sort of gospel, but also reggae. Um, so yeah, and it's a tough song. It is. So, yeah. yeah, it is. And like I said, right out of the gate, it, it doesn't sound like are. anything else. Here we are. This is us, right. and this is how we do things. Thank yeah, you very it's, much. It's, it's, un, it's, <laughs> it's, it's unambiguous. Basically, this is one of those albums that you don't often just sit down and play one track from. When you put on entertainment, generally, you're going to go... Soup to nuts. Yes, always, always. And then here's a good example, because it just... Good. This is not this is not a date album. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> it's funny, yeah, Roger Miller last week, we were talking to Roger Miller, and he said, Dark Side of the Moon, well, it's a good date. It was a good album good to make, out, make out music. <laughs> it's a make out, too. Yeah, this is not a make out record. <laughs> All right, so we go... <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we go right from Ether into song number two. We listen to a little bit of Naturals Not In It.
Oh, you just said that beat, that relentless beat with just that little that hi hat in there, and it's so tribal, but it's so like perfect. It's, w- it's, it's, it's wanted, so great. I wanted to ask you. Okay, you, sure. go ahead. I want to ask you one quick question about your drumming on that track. It always reminded me of um, Captain Beefheart drumming. Did you listen to Captain Beefheart at all, or is that just some uh, supposition on my part? Um, did I listen to Captain Beefheart? Do fish fucking water? <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I wasn't, I wasn't yes. off mark with that one, off, off base. Yeah. Um, yeah, I. that's one of our... Okay, all our songs are great, but that's one of the... There are certain songs really... I love playing it live. Yeah. And those are the songs that really appeal to me most because it's such a great beat. It is so... Um, it, it's gorgeous to play. Um, plus, I love the song. <laughs> this song's been very good to us. Um, probably 12-something years ago. I don't know. Um, but we were very fortunate um, that uh, when Xbox Connect came out, they chose this song um, as one of the three or four songs for their whole promotion. And it was... Oh, incredible. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. And, you know, the, the, the predictable people said, oh, Gang of Four sellout. It's like, <laughs> no. We played, you know, we played video games. We love this stuff. And, right, um, right. you know, they were very generous and it worked. It was a great, it was a great commercial. And uh, the song, was, and it was great because John didn't sing and it was mostly just me and Dave. It was the first time. Uh, right, right. <laughs> but... But because of who we were at the time and the way we did things, you know, that song was the gang of four. The four of us wrote that song together and we all benefited from the very good fortune and generosity of people who loved it enough to want to put it into a com- into a commercial and a, and a promotion. So, yeah, it was cool. It was really good seeing it. You know, That's great. Cool. I mean, my daughter and her friends thought, oh, this is all right. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to ask you. uh, The other uh, thing uh, about this song, I mean, isn't John King just the most stunning lyricist? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, the words in this. Repackaged sex keeps your interest. Mm. What a great line. Yeah. When we were writing it, we we weren't... We weren't saying, oh, fuck Thatcher or, you know, this, blah, blah, blah. Yes. good about the fact that our music and what we're talking about and the as we were referencing are and I you know it sounds a little sort of self indulgent but they are timeless I mean what's going on they are nothing has changed things have changed and there is so much relevance to what we were concerned about and what we were writing about and what we cared about um so the next song is not great, man. I can't remember one of these two we wrote in about two days. Um, before we went to record uh, entertainment, we spent a week or 10 days in this old hippie rehearsal studio farm in Wales um, because we needed to uh, fine-tune a few songs and come up with two others. And one, if not both of these, came up during that week, and which really uh, supports my thing. Some of the greatest songs just come. They just drop out of the air. Mm, right. The day 
working with each other and in that room and just, oh my God, to hell with poverty, not on this, but I'm just, that was another one that just came. Mm -hmm. It just fell into my lap. It worked, and that today is one of the greatest live record, uh, greatest studio recordings we managed to get together. Oh, oh I love the yeah. Hellwood Poverty. I know Barry loves that yeah, too. That is my, just like amazing. Of, another song. Dan- another dance floor. Put it on in a club, and yeah. So uh, you mentioned it. So let's listen to the next track. Uh, let's listen to Not Great Men. structured in that the recording really adds to it where there's one guitar in your left ear playing uh, um, the sliding note and the other guitar in your right ear playing the uh, uh, playing the sharp chord and it uh, yeah it, it was a really sort of heavy funky song um, which was where we were in our heads um, very again I talked earlier about being quite sort of mathematical about where I put uh, the beats I would hit and the drums I would hit and it's like again this is one of the songs when we first when we got back to playing together again that came quickly because it was muscle memory for me because oh yeah Yeah. this that many times and that one and yeah it's it's a fabulous song and one of uh, a lovely little side story about this is Shepard Fairey, um, who's a great artist, did a fabulous yes. post, Not Great Men, um, which he very kindly, they sent me a copy of, signed. Um, but yeah, people love this. The idea of the whole thing of, you know, <laughs> great men don't make history. Right. History in throws up men who somehow become great for want of a better word yeah but, you know yeah and and uh, yeah what you were saying about how uh, it, it's so it, it, it's it's smart it's intelligent i feel smarter when i when i listen to gang of four and i read these lyrics it makes me feel smarter well it makes you feel, it makes you <laughs> feel like, like you it's yeah, like schoolhouse exactly. rock that you could dance to <laughs> <laughs> that happens a lot whenever i Um, yeah it's awesome All right, so now we get John King is one of the most eloquent smart people I've met in my life he has wit he has humor and he he, he writes most stunning lyrics 
and I'm yep. so blessed to have been in a band with a man with that with that great talent. Right. Uh, yeah, like this next one, he's comparing a failing relationship to a financial transaction. It's brilliant. Uh, let's listen to a little bit of Damaged Goods. Yeah. So this one, along with, I found that Essence Rare, definitely you can hear the uh, uh, Dr. Feelgood. You can put more of the uh, connection to like a Dr. Feelgood uh, type vibe. Um, but yeah. still, just the, uh, the the fact that you just you just hammer down the beat and you don't overplay, that's so effective. And so many drummers don't do that. They just, they, they want to fill everything up with, like you said, with the splashy cymbals and with fills. And it's like, it makes it so much more powerful when you don't do that. Well, I mean, in terms of drumming, two of my greatest influences were Charlie Watts and uh, Simon Kirk from Free. Both men who really understood not overplaying. Um, and uh, the more I could be like them, the better I felt I was being and more useful and relevant as a drummer. Um, right. So there you go. I mean, other drummers I adored and loved who were not quite as um, less is more. Um, John Marr from the Buzzcocks, who mm, was just... Yeah, he's in, uh, just insane. Oh, yeah. He, he, but, yeah, that was his style, was, like, totally, like, playing, like, but, over, but that was his style, yeah. And he developed his very much um, influenced by the greatest living drummer, Clem Burke. Oh yeah. yes, he is great. I love Clem Burke. He is a he is an underrated great drummer, I believe. Right. Um, but lyrically, I mean, this this song was originally a little slower and was originally called "Love Not Lust." Um, and the whole "The Change Will Do You Good" that was the um, tagline for the local supermarket in Leeds. <laughs> the change will do you good. Um, yeah. uh, Morrison Supermarket, which is an aside, I was banned from uh, for life. Congratulations. <laughs> what did you good. do there? <laughs> <laughs> I stopped lifting, I got nailed by a cop. Oh, uh, okay. Well, you know. <laughs> so, so I was banned for life, right? From all worse. So when Gang of Four went back 
to Leeds in 2005. Well, we did our reunion tour. In the after sound check, I just had to walk down and sure. go into Morrison's and walk around and sort of look up and say, hello! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm back. All right, so now on, on a record full of favorites, like I said, I, I love, I literally love every, this whole record beginning to end, but this next one is, is one of my favorites on, uh, on the record. Uh, I, I, I love how it's, I, I just love how it's put together and I love how the, I, I just love it. Let's just listen to Return the Gift. was one of those sort of flyers you get in the mail is like hey buy these window replacements and uh, you can get a free holiday in scotland for a weekend i mean (laughs) yeah the timeshare timeshare thing yes go to scotland no obligation that's great (laughs) so that was lyrically um drumming wise um it's in two parts for me that's a that was my um that was my Clem Burke moment from Heart of Glass, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, right, yeah. right, right. The chorus, it was very much that sort of a stacks. Yes, yes, that's what I love. I love how it juxtaposes the verses to the chorus. It's, it's brilliant. I love it. Thank you. I am brilliant. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> well, uh, you know. I, I, You know what, Hugo? You've made us wait so long to come on the show. I promised... I was not going to kick your ass, but I uh, kiss your ass. I mean, kiss your ass so much, but I just can't help it. I, you know, what, what am I going to do? To kick an ass like mine, you got to have big shoes, baby. No, oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> These days, well, it happens oh. to everyone. Chew, though, you know. All right, okay, move on to the next song, Guns Before Butter. <laughs> yes. Uh, most So I read, I would not have known this until I, unless I researched it, that it refers to guns versus butter model, which is a macroeconomics. Uh, it's an example of, uh, I don't know, some macroeconomics thing. So like I said, it just makes you feel smarter just, you know, listening to the lyrics in these songs. Let's listen to a little bit of guns before butter. All this 
love it. Okay, so, okay, let me tell you, there are two elements to this song that are worth uh, talking about. Um, lyrically, um, <laughs> it, it, Joseph Goebbels said, we can do without butter, but despite all our love of peace, not without arms. Mm. One cannot yeah. shoot with butter. Um, and Goering said in a speech, guns will make us powerful, Butter will only make us fat. <laughs> so oh <we're>, God! <laughs> what, what what do we spend our collective funds on? Do we do we do we spend it on arms or do we spend it on looking after the people? So right. okay, that's that. Um, musically, um, it's it's all about the drums. This is my song, and this is entirely and absolutely my um, absolute steal from and reference to John Marr from Buzzcocks. The song "Moving Away from the Pulse." Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh. So, listen, to that, listen to that, and you will hear my steel. John was a just nice. fantastic drummer, and uh, horribly so young when he developed this fantastic style. But that is one of the great songs we toured with him. Quite <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, he, he he was just lovely and generous and great, and played fantastic drums. Uh, he and Clem and I all played Premier Resonator drums, oh. um, and and Premier's expense. You know, they provided. Oh, nice. of, um, They weren't free, but they were cost, and they made custom sizes and a custom cover for me. So, to this day, although other people have moved on, I, I still, when I do play, I have my Premier Resonator kits, English drums. Nice. Nice. Well, that shows that shows how much it is uh, the player, though, because as three as great, you all three of you are great, but all three of you sound different. You all have your own yeah. sound, and you're playing yeah. the same drum. So obviously, it's your playing that makes you guys sound unique. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I, uh, when you I'm hit the yeah, man. when you I'm hit these drums, if you will. When we went back out in 2005, and if we ever do it again, this is one song that probably won't be played because it is. I, I'm way too old to play that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, tricky. A little tricky. Well, you know what? I was going to ask you about the recording. Uh, did you guys? Did you play? I'm assuming you played all together. You maybe did you just record you and the and the bass player at first? But did you guys all play at the same time in the right. studio? Oh. When we were at the workhouse studio, it was um, this really cool place on the Old Kent Road in South London um, that uh, we chose largely because Ian Jury had done new boot panties there. Mm -hmm. And it was a owned by Manfred Mann. And uh, it was cool. But the way it was set up, the control room was quite small, but was on one floor overlooking sideways through a mirror through, through a mirror through a glass wall the studio downstairs on the ground floor so the way we did it was dave and i would play together and andy would i think be up in the control room um oh. he laid down the tracks but it was really about me and dave first and right. I, I you know i i've said this before but i'll just say it briefly again I was terrified. I had terrible red light fever. It was really stressful for me. Um, and by the time Dave and I had finished doing our thing, um, <laughs> by the time we got up to the control room, all the good seats were taken. 
there's not much room for us in the room. So <laughs> we weren't really involved in the production side of it. And I, you know, I get it, but it was, I wasn't comfortable. I was not, it, it was not a recording that made me feel really um, confident in my own abilities. Uh, unlike, that's interesting. That's interesting. Unlike, unlike when we went to Abbey Road with the producer Jimmy Jimmy Douglas to do Solid Gold. That was a much warmer, more enjoyable um, thing for me, particularly. So well, you felt more comfortable, but. I wonder if that fear, that tension added to the tension, to the sound of it, though. I wonder if that, I mean, you know, maybe that added some to it, though, you know? Because you can't uh, deny the, the playing is just like, it's got this it's got this tension and everything. So maybe that added to it, you know? Yeah, well, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, you're young. I figured you're young I, kid. I, I, yeah, forgive me. Forgive me. I, I'm just, I, maybe. Maybe it did, but it yeah. wasn't. I think my playing was actually sort of better on Solid Gold because I felt I controlled it and I was I was good at what I did. The right. first time when, when we were doing it, it was like, oh my god, you know, I, I right. didn't feel too strong. I mean, I did a but you guys. Track. I, I mean, but some, like you mentioned, uh, muscle memory though. Some of it because you guys have obviously been playing a lot. You know, you played live shows, so you had you had it in you. You had the muscle memory, so I'm sure that helped carry you through, even though you were terrified. Well, like anyone doing their first album, generally, you you know, because in those days you you'd been around for a while before you got a deal and before you got to make your first record. You know, yeah. generally. Second albums are much harder. Ours was great because we just we were on it and clicked, and we were working so well together. And a number of those songs we'd already been playing live. But yeah, most of entertainment we'd been playing for quite a long time, so it, 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 it that that made it a lot easier. But it was that down in that ground floor but basement feeling room with everyone looking down on you, and there wasn't uh, a lot of. Um, it was like, no, you fucked up, do it again, as opposed to, yeah, nice one. Let's try another oh, one. Oh, they weren't coddling you. They weren't coddling you at all. <laughs> no coddling going on at all. <laughs> well, you know, a tough love, Hugo, tough love. All right, so let's flip over. We're on side two now. Let's listen to the, uh, the wonderful I Found That Essence Rare.
this this was one of the uh, songs that survived, if you will, from a while back. That was just basically a little bit more of a straight-ahead rocker. Um, right. Very, very Doctor Feelgood influenced. Um, yes. Great live. Um, not uh, dissimilar to the song that never made the album that we dropped by that time, called Elevator, which uh, is in part of the box set. It's on the cassette. And actually, we sort of just released it. <laughs> yes, I, I heard that. It's so raw. It's so like raw and punk sounding for you guys. It's awesome. Yeah, it is. It's fun. And I mean, uh, this is the one that EMI really wanted us to put out as a first single because it, for obvious reasons, it was a good. Yeah, right, right. Rock song that would have worked well on radio and would have made EMI's job a lot easier to help market and promote us. And because that was such a obvious solid decision, <laughs> we said no. Said no. Of yeah. course. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's, it's harmonically, it's very straightforward. It's, in, it's E and A. So it's, you know, it's yeah. uh, familiar, familiar yeah, as, territory. As John has eloquently said, not, not just once over the years, we never missed an opportunity mm. to miss an opportunity. Yeah. Right. <laughs> You're not alone. But, but, no, but, but also, it's like, it, it was a real Gang of Four song, but it wasn't really where our heads were at at that time. Great right. song, it's album, it belongs there, it deserved to be there, but it wasn't about us moving forward. Got it. Yep, I hear that. I get that. And and I think this next one also is a little more, well, post-punk, but a traditional post-punk sounding in that uh, I could almost hear uh, this song being like, like Wire or Magazine doing uh, this song as well. Uh, this, this song is called, it's called Glass. Sort of, I always thought it was slightly beatly rocker, um, <laughs> right? You know, because it was it was lyrical. It was um, it was it was a tune. It was great, but it wasn't where we were going. Um, right, right. I, I love the song, and I mean, come on, Bob Dylan 
wishes he could have written, I'm so restless, I'm bored as a cat. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. <laughs> um, uh, so now we get another relationship as contractual transaction. I'm going to go out on a limb and say John King's uh, relationship has some relationship issues, maybe, or I don't know, getting them out in, in the lyrics. Um, play the song. <laughs> yes, <laughs> let's listen to Contract. <laughs> antithesis of I mean, you know John's experience John has been married longer than anyone I know other than my brother Jolyon um, oh really <laughs> oh I mean yeah I mean he he and his wife Debbie have been together forever and um, <laughs> oh well that's nice and it, oh yeah I mean you know f- through high school and everything and they are the most wonderful couple together. But this is John separating himself to look at things um, from an... It sounds snotty, but from an intellectual perspective about how how people look at love Mm -hmm. and relationships. Yeah, well, it seems like he has a very jaded view of... Try to fool ourselves and each other about what relationships really mean. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was just a step sideways for, um, lyrically. Um, yeah, it's an odd song. There's no two ways about it, but uh, it, it is fierce. I, I mean, come on, our bodies make us worry. Name one person you know who really says, yeah. My body rocks. I am perfect. Nah. nah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Seems like he's taking notes from the way television presents the scenarios, soap operas, and and move in movies yeah, in Hollywood. Um, you know, this is a co- this commoditization of the you know the um, the body and the relationships. Absolutely. In a nutshell, I, I, I and, uh, it's, it's a, 
wish I wish John was here with us to talk about this because he 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 is so um, eloquent and smart well, what's, about. What's his phone well, number? So we'll just add him. Yeah, let's call. We'll call him. Although it's really late there, isn't it? It's uh, yeah. England. He's still in England, right? And he he also charges more than I do for these things. I see. Ah, uh, okay. All right. Well, yeah, we didn't talk about that yet, that. but we'll get to that. You know, you go. Actually, I was going to ask you: Was it agreed, like right from the start, that you would? Because it's brilliant. By the way, me and Barry are, are big fans of bands that decide to, to share the songwriting credit among the band. Uh, but was that something you know that you just all decide early on? Because obviously, without D- Dave Allen and. You go Burnham. This record would not be this record. I mean, your con- contributions, you know, obviously are, are yes. have, have to be recognized, there, but a lot of times they're not. You know, right? So there is um, there are principles to, here at stake as well as the reality. When we started, we wrote everything together. Um, writing a song. This is not Tin Pan Alley. Mm. This is not the Brill. Where two people sit and bang it out, and yeah. then they get an A and R person to pick it up and tell uh, a group what to sing. You know, the Beatles right. changed the yeah. uh, in terms of business as much as they did musically. Um, we really worked out and fought through these songs together, and we and in principle as well as practice, this was a shared experience and a shared endeavor. Yeah. As we move on through our career, so there were fissures started to appear. Mm. And there were certain where um, credit became less than uh, split equally. Yeah. And uh, yeah. whatever, whatever. But in, in terms of principle, the bands, most bands that stick together, um, there is an equitable situation in terms of income. I mean, I don't oh, know if absolutely, you've seen, absolutely. I don't, I mean, you too. They split, they split every penny of income. Yeah. Whether yes. or not it's entirely, but nobody goes without. Right. Yes. They are still together. Um, if you see the Go-Go's document, documentary, yes. and I love that band. Um, I think Gina is one of the loveliest people in the world, but if you re- see the documentary, it's when, as with many other acts, they'll say, yeah, we had this hit, finally everything was coming together, and wait a minute, somebody just got a check for $57,000, and I got one for $5,000. Right. That's yeah. fucking... <laughs> yeah. That is... Right. You know, uh, because songs are not just sitting there in the ether for somebody to pull down. Um oh. Every people are not just buying the melody line and the lyric. People are buying and investing in and loving the whole thing, right. which is the performance, the personalities involved, which is working for years in shitty rehearsal rooms and on the road in awful clubs and you know dealing with all that crap. When the, these songs are forged by people working together. Right. And I'm sure a lot of people say, well, yeah, of course, that's what the fucking drummer will say. But honestly... No, 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 no. no. Uh, We agree with you 100%. Without any disrespect, um, my former brothers in arms, 
Um, the greatest work we did was when the four of us were working and arguing and poking each other in the chest back and forward together. That, that was the time of our greatest work. Mm. Of course, because yeah. that's a band. That's a band. And that's what, yeah, like you said, it's not just a songwriter writing in the Brill Building. It's a band. So, yeah, it's true. It's a real Mick thing. Dagger can make a lot of fun solo albums. Without Charlie Watts, they're fuck all. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm sure that um, the 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 amount of I, the I, amount of money that changes hands in those kind of transactions is, um, yeah, yeah, even more astonishing. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> astonishing. Um, I think that's one of the great strengths of the box set of Matador that we're we're putting out with Matador. Um, and as John said, this is the definitive um, record of our history, um, because over the years, you know, things have been said or sort of a slight twisting or rewriting of history. This is the real story about the four of us together and how yeah. uh, the, you know, Andrew Gill is one of the greatest guitar players that ever lived. Oh, no doubt. And the peak of his work was between 77 and 81. Agree. Yeah, for sure. I agree. Totally. And uh, speaking of that, let's listen to this next song, which is, uh, oh, I, I love this song so much. It's great. Uh, it, it's, it, this has got it all. This is, the, this is one of those Gang of Four songs that this is, if you want to explain to someone what Gang of Four is, you could play them at home. He's a tourist. that is um, elementally wonderful to play live. It is so much about tension and release. Um, yes. And I, I, I just have to give a shout out. I mean, we went back to what we said earlier about what we were live, like live. One of the things that we never did right in the way that, say, The Clash did was 
apart from we never really filmed everything. Yeah. We should. We, I would made really good recordings back then of our live shows because we had the greatest soundman um, in Kevin Harvey, um, who was with us for years, um, <laughs> who now lives in Las Vegas. Having been a salmon for Engelbert Humperdinck for many years. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> but Kevin, Kevin was a, he was a wizard. He was so, so good. And the things he would do with the sound system to sort of uh, uh, work with and twist, you know, the guitar things and the way it would echo and, and do reverb. It, Extraordinary, really, really an, an artist himself. I mean, you know the way that um, Martin Swope was in in some ways. Yeah, with, um, Burma, Mr. Sure. Burma. Yes, people who mess with the sound. It, it, it's great, but um, yeah, fantastic song. And of course, there's the whole story about top of the pops and getting kicked off. And mm-hmm. yes, another missed opportunity of um, we were right at the time, but in the long term. <laughs> Yeah, right. yeah, we, you stood your ground. We won for today. You know, <laughs> we, we won the battle, but we lost the war, yeah. sort of. Um, you didn't lose the war, Hugo, because we're still talking about it, so you didn't true. lose the war. That's true. Yeah, I, uh, I wish you'd pay me to talk about it. Well, <laughs> all right, well, let's not get let's not get carried away, yeah. you and Hugo. All right, let's not get carried away. All right, let's, so we get uh, this. <laughs> That song, um, that was actually we the first time we recorded that as the sing- our first single for EMI. We that was the first time we went to the workout studio, uh, and that was fun. That was pretty good. And that's um, we I, I actually played Charlie Charles Kit, um, the guy uh, who was in the Blockheads, because it was set up, mm-hmm. and that's what oh, I really nice. discovered. I, I that was what inspired me to have a just an, a 20 inch bass drum that was 18 inches long oh. as opposed to the very standard 20 or 24 times 16 because he had, it was like a cannon yeah and that's what i lost yes. from me um when they made my custom kit so um that that was a good recording experience and uh yeah pretty damn good nice. song isn't it Oh, that's so great. Uh, and now we get on uh, this one, 545. We've got the melodica, which in listening, re-listening to the record, I didn't realize how much he used uh, melodica, which is not something that was used a lot then, but he really used it a lot. And, and it adds so much to these sure. songs, uh, the melodica. Well, melodica, yes. melodica was really very, um, uh, well, okay, play the song and we'll talk about it. Yes, 545.
So was that a melodica byproduct of listening to Augustus Pablo Records? You nerd. <laughs> yeah. I've, well, I was okay. But back in this, I was during okay. the same period. I was listening to Augustus Pablo Records. So it's uh, okay, it seemed so, like an, okay. an, an honest uh, uh, assessment. Yeah. So okay. <laughs> okay. You think you're smart? What was his real name? Don't know. Augustus Pablo. <laughs> okay, uh, Horace Swaby or Swaby, um, yeah, was Augustus Pablo. I mean, he was a uh, producer. He, he was smart to change his name. <laughs> we grew up listening to this stuff, you know. You uh, okay. wrote um, just what a beautiful instrument, and that was. The recorder and the melodica were two of these sort of instruments when we were kids growing up in school. You know, when, when there were school bands that didn't actually weren't orchestras, you played yeah. recorder. Cheap. Or you played yeah. the melodica. Yeah. And it fabulous instrument. I mean, damn. Yeah, it's um, simple, but it adds, yeah, it adds so much. It's definitely a little haunting quality, and it you'll does. hear it a, a lot. So it really just definitely sets it apart. So, yeah, and it. We love the sound, and um, yeah, it, that's all it is. It's us um, tipping a heavy nod to Augustus Pablo. <laughs> yeah. Uh, nice, Barry. Good. Yeah, Barry's good at bringing at uh, looking out those things. He, I wouldn't call me a nerd. He's a little bit of a nerd, but um, all right. So now we get <laughs> the final song. It's a loving of way. course, of course you did. That's fine, Hugo. Don't worry about it. Barry can take it. Um, all right, so That's the final song in this record. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this this song perfectly encapsulates the, the artistry, what I feel like the artistry of Gang of Four, because uh, it's just, it's so weird. First of all, it's such a weird song. It's not like a verse, chorus, or whatever, but it's got this, uh, it's got the guitar feedback, and then they're relentless drum beat which is just like brilliant hugo i i swore i wasn't gonna blow so much smoke up your ass but i can't help it but uh this song just just floors me every time i hear it Let's well to a little bit of i, I should also add that our ahead, this vicinity in in florida has a distinctly personal relationship with anthrax where we were the subject of uh i worked with people who were um, actually oh yeah yeah actually, that's right i worked with people uh who worked at national Enquirer who were um, we lost some friends during the anthrax attacks of uh, 2001. Yes. So uh, it does have a sort of odd um, resonance right here in uh, uh, 26 degrees <laughs> north does. of the equator. There you go. <laughs> Are you playing it or are you? It's just fading in. Yes, here we go. <laughs> oh, God, should I say something now? <laughs> oh, it doesn't matter, Hugo. Well, uh, you know. <laughs> you can talk over the feedback intro. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this was another song that, you know, I will talk over it because. It's fine. Performance wise, performance wise, every time was different. Um,. Oh yeah, so much sure. about when, when I or when Dave and I would start playing, you know, I'd be sitting there with my hands down by my side, slowly, slightly watching Andrew, and some nights it could be three or four or five minutes before we came in with that <laughs> droning beat. Right, right, because, right. Because some nights he, he was just so fucking on you couldn't interrupt the introduction. Yes, it was so 
mentally brilliant stuff. Right. And he but would, this is this is one. Go ahead, Barry. I said that he would reprise this sort of uh, idea in the beginning of To Hell with Poverty, where there's that long, aggressive but very uh, sort of yeah feedbacky um, uh, intro. Yeah, I mean, listen. When here we go. Yeah, see now, now Hugo, how would you not get a writing credit for this? Of course, you'd have to get a writing of credit course. for this song. I mean, come on, that fucking makes yeah. the song. Yeah, I mean, that's the essence of the song. And you know, without blowing my own trumpet, a really confident rhythm. You can, you can fade out. <laughs> Endorsements of romantic love ever written. Love will get you like a case of anthrax. I mean, it was. I mean, in terms of the way we put it together, you know, it really was inspired by that whole split screen thing. Um, yes. You know, Jean Luc Godard, Godard's Numero Deux. It's like two things going along beside each other. And when we first did it for the. Um, Entertainment, uh, entertainment, uh, damaged goods EP for Fast Records. Um, it was not about love. Andy's side thing was about the studio process. Right, and, right, right, right. Everyone talks about, oh my god, you know how really cool and arty it was him coughing before he started. <laughs> well, let me tell you, <laughs> what happened was, you know, <laughs> he. Um, you know, we had we had we had an occasional drink. You know, mm. and there was this uh, Anne of Carlsberg special brew that was just sitting there while while Andy was getting ready. And he thought, "Oh, I'm going to have a swig of this." Oh. Somebody used it as an Say ash- ashtray. Yeah. <laughs> and so you know, he swigged it back. And goes, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Even in it's beautiful. Yeah, on the de- so, on the original version, he's actually just reading off the equipment that was used in the studio. You can hear him say something like, you know, an A and D flanger and stuff like that. So it's a uh, um, yeah, absolutely. So it, you know, I mean, again, with with any arts, when if you do a painting and then you do another painting the same, it's going to be slightly different, which is yeah. how you are as an artist, as a creator. <laughs> If you literally reproduce what you've done before, it's not very interesting. Hmm. So the fact that he um, uh, uh, changed that whole side lyric when we came to do it for the what, album. What um, drew his attention to Anthrax? Like what, what he'd been reading where he would have seen some something about Anthrax and thought, oh, well, there we go. You'll have to ask John about that because that was his thing. Okay. Um, I don't know. <laughs> it's certainly an odd choice. We'll get his phone number. Could have been smallpox. Could have been diphtheria, or you know, anthrax. Anthrax is a great word. It is. Sometimes words, whatever they mean, have, have, have a presence of their own. Mm-hmm. And anthrax did. I always thought we should have got 
some sort of royalty from the heavy metal band Anthrax, who actually I worked with when I was when I was working at Island Records because they um, they were with uh, metal something uh, New Jersey who who they ended up on Island Records. They were they were great. I love them. Yeah, they they were. Yeah, they were good. I I will tell you, Hugo, you should actually get um, uh, some royalties from Red Hot Chili Peppers, which they have some songs which are uh, complete ripoffs of Gang of Four, (laughs) right? Yeah, I I love them. Um, You know, they they've been so lovely to us over the years. I mean, Flea particularly has been so gracious. He seems like a a good guy. Yeah, he's always he's always given us. Real love and credit. Um, there's actually a picture. I, I'm not sure if it made the book in the in the uh, box set or not. But there's this great picture of uh, when we were playing at Perkins Palace in '81. Some kid ran up on stage naked and mm. hugged John. <sighs> Couldn't get a. That was Flea. Oh, Flea. Flea. Oh, okay. Right. Well, the, the Flea's naked. Uh, yeah, every other picture of Flea, he's naked. He's very so, comfortable yeah. with his uh, <laughs> physique. Um, he is. Very, you know, um, absolutely hugging John. and it, Yeah, that was Flea. So um, <laughs> he, he has been very lovely and gracious about us over the years. Um, and, in fact, he, he flew all the way... Um, from his home to London for Andy's uh, memorial service wow. in February last year, which oh, okay, was nice. love, very kind. Um, yeah, that's yeah. nice. Yeah. Fabulous All right, fans. so uh, we did it. We made it through the record, and uh, oh man, you, you go. It was really, it was really great. Uh, so great having you on. We're so happy. Uh, that you uh, finally came onto the show, and yeah. uh, it was definitely well, yeah. worth the wait. It, it, you know, I, I had nothing else to do, so it was my pleasure. <laughs> I should. I, I want to. I, I want to mention real quick how we, how uh, like we first uh, met each other was actually through your daughter Tess and my uh, my bandmate when I was. Uh, up in Salem, Mass, playing in a band uh, with my friend uh, Dan Hosker, who was killed uh, in 2012 in a in a tragic car accident coming home from a gig. So we decided to make oh. a music scholarship for him from the school, uh, right. Bishop Fenwick. Right. I remember. That's yes, of course. And then and then Tess. Uh, so Dan's sister, Chris, who do, you know does the scholarship and gives it away every year, she sends me a note. Hey, this girl, she's awesome. This girl, Tess Burnham, uh, won the scholarship. Got the scholarship this year, and her dad, his name is Hugo. He used to play in some punk band in England called Gang of Four. Some Have you ever heard band. of them? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, so I just, I just, yes, absolutely. And I just want to really acknowledge how fabulous a gesture that was and how much it meant to us and to Tessie to get that oh, that's nice that's that's um, great how's she doing she's doing great right she's she's killing she, it I it, think she went on she is um, a musical theater major at Dean College in Franklin Massachusetts and loving it and doing so well even though awesome. even though they've Manage studying musical theater online. Yeah. You know, oh God, I know. Difficult. So, yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, Hugo, one question: What's harder, playing in a band with four very opinionated, headstrong people, or raising a, a, a teenage daughter? What's harder? 
I think I was very lucky with both. Oh, okay. That's yeah, good. you are. Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's a <Sure>. good answer. <laughs> I really, I, 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 I have, um, I've got more from both things than most people are lucky to be able to do. Um, you know, Tessie is terrific at what she does. I'm very blessed. She just turned 21. Um, in her um, sophomore year at college, she, in, uh, she ended up in a professional or semi-professional, not student production over the summer before we all got hit with COVID, mm -hmm. um, of Hairspray. And she played the main role in Hairspray at this. Yes, that's right. I saw that. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. I, I went every night and I of course you did and the worst thing was like, oh my god is she ever going to get a role like this again because <laughs> it was perfect for her so good so yeah, yeah again that, that was one of the most lovely sort of coincidental things that ever happened and I, I, I I'm so lucky to have been able to um somehow indirectly help my my girl for that and it was a yes. lovely thing and awesome. okay so at some point i would be delighted whether it's me on my own or perhaps even john and i together to talk about uh solid gold with you guys one day we'd love it oh we would love, we would love that yes i do i love you, that you, I'll, name, I'll tell you, you what. name the time and the place <laughs> and we'll be there you name the time and the place. i'll tell you what you guys the first even the, the next record, Songs of the Free, I love that record too. You guys were a band. The first three records are just killer, just just monsters. Not you know from beginning so, to end, I, you guys. Killed no, it I, I, I appreciate. Songs of the Free was the first thing we did without Dave, which was odd and difficult. But Sarah Lee was so fantastic. Yeah, she's and, tremendous. Uh, it, it, was, it, it was definitely a different vibe doing that record. But there's some fantastic songs on it. There's no. No, oh, there is. And uh, yeah, Solid Gold is, is solid, as its name says, Solid Gold. All right, that would be awesome. We're going to hold you to that. Uh, thanks again. We'll as good, go on, as good as I am, which I am, John is, <laughs> John is eloquence personified. So we're, we, we do a good two-step together. So I can't believe, I, I can't believe he can be more eloquent than you are, but I guess we'll have to try and find out. For sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks again so much. Uh, yes, don't forget. Uh, so you, the release you know. date is March 12 for um, Gang of Four, 77 to 81, the limited edition box set by Matador. We'll put the link on our website. We'll put the link where you guys can uh, you could pre-order it and get it. Thanks again so much. Next week, uh, Barry, do we have that guy? Michael Bruford, someone from, from the UK. You go, we're talking yeah, to Michael Bruford from the UK that, yeah. about uh, young marble giants. Right. Uh, colossal well, youth. I I have not heard from Great. Michael, and I can't find his contact information, so we shall see, we'll get says we'll the blind him. man. <laughs> All right. Don't forget, uh, you people can go to patreon.com forward slash TRGMH and become a patron of us. That record got me high. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, on Instagram, we're at that record got me high. On Twitter, that record... Uh, T I don't know, TRGMH podcast. No, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That record got me high on Facebook, and also that Facebook group got me high, which is a, a fan-created Facebook group for us. And uh, you can email us at TRGMH33 at gmail.com. And what else should they do, Barry? Go to Patreon forward well, slash. What they should do is listen 
every podcast you do because it's a really cool series and I'm really flattered that you guys asked me to participate. Well, ah, well that's I, one so, thing that's I've been, so nice. I wanted to say <laughs> since the beginning was this is our 156th episode, um, which, or, or, which is um, exactly three years since we began doing the show. So uh, oh, this okay. is uh, wow. season four, episode one five six. So this is it. Yes, and we're not we're not full on alcoholics yet. So that's amazing. Yeah, well, that we've managed this week to do that. this week has put, <laughs> put that to a serious test for me, but I won't go into that. You go, you go. Really, thanks again so much. It was a pleasure having you on. Uh, this was great. Once again, uh, thanks everyone for listening. We love you guys. We'll see you next week. Once again, that is Barry Stack. And that is Rob Elba. And we will see you guys next week. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> say it. I'll edit it in. This is Hugo Burnham from Gang of Four. Thank you so much. Perfect. Thank you. Awesome. All right. We'll see you guys next week. We are out.